Romans 14, 1 through 23. And as always, you're going to find it exceedingly helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. That is always a good habit, especially when we come to a difficult chapter like this. If we're not um, careful, we're going to miss really the, the nuances that are so important to Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 14. So we're looking here, beginning in verse 1, the apostle says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own uh, master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems, esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let... What you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, the um, contemporary philosopher Charles Taylor has rightly pointed out that ours is a day in which the only virtue our society wants to posit as a virtue is authenticity. You are authentic. You are true to yourself. No one tells you what to do. You're going to be authentic. You're going to be true to yourself. You are under no authority but your own preferences and desires and wants. That's the world we live in. Authenticity trumps everything. Um, D.A. Carson notes that uh, when we adopt that sort of mentality that being authentic is the only thing that matters, he says the source or nature of that authority does not matter, whether it's government or parents or tradition or religion or mortality or morality. But the only thing that matters is me, what I want, what I think. Um, the only thing that ought to matter to you is what I want and what I think. And that is so deeply ingrained in us 
as fallen men and women and boys and girls that we oftentimes don't even recognize when we have adopted that sort of mentality. All that matters is really what I want and me being real and true and authentic to myself. Now, that is not just an issue, though it is more philosophically entrenched in our society. It is not merely an issue of our society. It is, as I have already noted, it is an issue of the human heart. And it's an issue that the Apostle Paul is, in some sense, addressing here in Romans chapter 14. Now, what is very interesting about Paul's letter to the Romans is that there are only two issues that Paul addresses to this church. The first issue is that of legalism and self-righteousness. He, he spent the first 11 chapters really dealing with the error of legalism and self-righteousness. How, how are we accepted by God? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's not by works of the law. It's not by us trying to establish our own righteousness. The the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day were doing that, and Paul understood that was a danger, a perennial danger to all men and women. And so Paul has gone to great lengths to set out the glories of the gospel of God's grace in Christ and to point out the dangers and the weaknesses of legalism and self-righteousness. The other issue, the only other issue Paul addresses in this letter is the issue he addresses in this chapter— and that is the issue of liberty of conscience and the relationship that the believer has to every other believer with regard to matters of conscience. Now, Paul will speak about these things in other, uh, in other letters that he wrote. He will speak about cases of conscience and matters of liberty of conscience in 1 Corinthians 8. He will certainly touch on it in Paul's letter to the Colossians and in his letter to the Galatians. But there he is dealing with very different relations regarding cases of conscience. In Colossians, he's dealing with those who would impose on the people a sort of asceticism and say, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be close to God, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle and Paul will say that's heresy and that that's another gospel and that, that attacks the very essence of the gospel. In Galatians, the danger was that some had come into the church and they were saying to the people, if you really want to be accepted by God, you've got to observe days and months and seasons and years. You've got to go back and embrace the Old Testament ceremonial system from circumcision through all the feasts and festivals. And Paul says, I am worried for you that you will depart from the faith by allowing the essence of the gospel to be perverted through the imposition of old covenant ceremonies that are fulfilled in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 8, he is dealing with the issue of believers not being sure whether they can eat meat that has been offered to idols. Because in that world, all the meat you would have bought in the marketplace had been offered to other gods. And so Paul is dealing with the issues of meat offered to idols and, and whether or not believers should partake or abstain. Here he is doing something very unique and distinct from those things. He is giving us what is the greatest exposition of the doctrine of the conscience. We're going to talk about that this morning a bit. The doctrine of the conscience. Every one of you has a conscience. And those consciences must be informed by God's word. But what happens when we live among other believers whose consciences are not as informed as ours are by God's word, or whether we do not have consciences informed to the degree that they should be by God's word, and how are we to relate to one another? Paul will give two categories of believers in this chapter, the weak and the strong. Every one of you, every one of us, falls into one of those categories. We are either weak in the faith or we are strong in the faith. I've never met someone that is weak in the faith that knows that they're weak in the faith. In fact, Paul will essentially say it's oftentimes the strongest consciences that are not biblically informed that are the weakest 
believers precisely because they have strong consciences about things that have not been biblically informed. But Paul's intent here is not just to give us a theology of the conscience and a theology of how we are to relate to one another. He is bringing this down to the very root of our Christian fellowship and our life together as believers in the church. Now, Paul is going to do two things here, just two I'm going to point out to us this morning. One is he is going to give us the obligation, the obligation to welcome one another. We are obligated, notice there in verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. We, are, we have a responsibility, we are obliged to welcome brothers and sisters who have unbiblically informed consciences about any number of things and who are weak in the faith. And then secondly, the apostle is going to give us obstacles to welcoming one another, the obligation to welcome each other and obstacles to welcoming one another. Well, notice as I have already read there in verse 1, Paul is giving us the obligation as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. It's a very straightforward command, Christian command. We are to be a welcoming people. Christians are to welcome other Christians. Sadly, that is so often not the case in the Christian church. Many professing Christians are censorious. They are judgmental. They are demeaning. They are hypercritical. And they try to bind everyone else to think and believe exactly like them in any number of things, oftentimes and usually in the most trivial and minutia of things in the Christian faith. And so Paul gives us that blanket statement, that obligation. If you are a professing believer, what should mark you in relationship to all other professing believers is a welcoming and an accepting spirit one toward another. Um, That is really setting the tone for everything that Paul said. Now, let me say this this morning. Paul is not saying, you have to listen very carefully, Paul is not saying, as a professing believer, you are to be accepting of everyone, irrespective of who they are or what they're doing. He is not saying that. Paul would be contradicting everything that he said in the first chapter of this book, that the great problem with men is that we are unrighteous, that we do unrighteous things, that we're under the wrath of God, that by nature we hate God, we exchange the glory of God into things that are not God, we worship the creature rather than the creator, we've turned in on ourselves, and and God's righteous judgment stands against all wickedness, in the world and against all who practice and live in wickedness in the world. And so Paul is not coming to the end of this letter and saying, listen, here's the really thing. Just, 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 just be wrong. Just love everybody and just embrace everybody as they are. It's not what he's saying. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Now, Paul's assumption here is that the people he's writing to have received everything that he has said in chapters 1 through 11. They believe that by nature they are unrighteous. They believe that they're under the wrath of God by nature. They believe that they deserve the righteous judgment of God. They believe that God has sent the Lord Jesus to bear that judgment and to deal with the problem of unrighteousness, to provide a righteousness apart from the law that comes by faith in Christ. They have believed that Christ is the last Adam who by his righteous life and atoning death has solved the problem of our unrighteousness and has made us acceptable to God. They have received everything that Paul has said in chapters 1 through 11. There is no disagreement. They have even accepted collectively what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 12 when he comes to make the applications. They have collectively said we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. They have agreed on all of those things. But then there are other things. There are secondary things and tertiary things about which they are not agreed. And Paul is saying 
to professing believers who have received the gospel, who are trusting in Christ, who have made the good confession of faith, who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, he is writing to them and saying, nevertheless, there are always going to be differences among you. There are always going to be different spiritual conditions of people among you. And as you look out and you see those differences and you hear those opinions, here is what the Lord expects from you. Welcome one another. Receive one another. Love one another. Care for one another. Nurture one another. Be mindful of one another. Now, Martin Luther essentially summarizes the entirety of this chapter in a little book he wrote on liberty of conscience and the issue of the conscience and liberty of conscience. And Luther famously says this, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all. A Christian man or woman is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man or woman is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. That summarizes everything that Paul says in here. The Christian is the Lord of all, subject to none. The Christian is servant to everyone, is obligated to be a servant to all. Now, we may say we know this, and we may say, that's right, I like that. Lord of none, servant of all, that sounds good. But then, the way we speak, the way we interact, the way we talk about others in the body, in the fellowship, and other fellowships, the way we put people down, the way we judge, the way we despise, shows that oftentimes we really don't believe that. That we're turned in on ourselves and not seeking to be welcoming and accepting of those that the Lord has welcomed and accepted. Um, I love the way that the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's one of the greatest statements in our confessional standards, our doctrinal um, standards in, in the Reformed Presbyterian world. Listen to this. I love this statement. God alone is Lord of the conscience. Let me say this before I go on. What is the conscience? The word conscience means with knowledge, con-science, with knowledge. God has created you with a conscience. And, and maybe the most helpful way to think about the conscience is to think about the little cartoon with the, the good angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. And the good angel is the conscience saying, don't do it, you know it's wrong. And the devil saying, you want to do it, do it, it's going to be so good for you. I don't know, those voices are probably not apropos, but you got the two there. And, there, and that's our experience in everything. That's our experience. You know this is wrong, I want to do it, do it. And, and we have a, a crisis of conscience. And what the Westminster Confession says, based on what Scripture teaches, is that God alone is Lord of the conscience. There's only one Lord of our conscience, and it is the God who has made us. And he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. That means that no one has a right to bind your conscience to anything that God has not bound it to. And if you have been redeemed by Christ, Christ has set you free so that your conscience is now set free to serve God and to do what is pleasing to him. Remember, it was Luther who, before the Diet of Worms, when he is put on trial before the Roman Catholic Church, and they are demanding that he profess to believe in all of these unbiblical things, all of these things that the Bible calls doctrines of demons, Luther says it is neither right nor safe to go against conscience. God help me. Now Luther is saying it is not right to go against a conscience that is singularly bound by what God has revealed in his word. God alone is Lord of the conscience. He has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word so that to believe such doctrines or obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. 
It is wrong to go against liberty of conscience and to have our conscience bound singularly by what the Lord has said in his word. Nevertheless, listen, the confession goes on to say the liberty that Christ has purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another. Now, the reason that the confession says that is because those men knew that we have a propensity to say, nobody's going to tell me what to do, and who cares about these schmoes? I'm going to do what I want to do. We all have that propensity. And what, what the authors of the Westminster Confession are saying is that God has set our consciences free in Christ to be bound by his word and to do what makes for upholding and edifying and blessing every other believer. To think outside and to think about welcoming those around us, even and especially when they are weak in the faith and have weak consciences, when they are weak believers. Now, the precise historical circumstances into which the apostle is speaking are circumstances of drink and food and days. It is diet and it is days. There are some who have a conscience that allows them to eat and drink whatever they want. And there are others whose consciences mistakenly tell them, I really can't drink that wine or eat this meat. Um, by the way, I think it's fascinating how much error there is in our world centered around eating and drinking. How many people make their diets their religion. Their life is consumed by it. They can't function unless they're thinking about, well, what can I eat that, and can I eat this, and well, what can I do with that, and I'm not allowed to do this, and is that going to hurt me, and is this going to... And they're, they're consumed by it. Very interesting, by the way. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. One of the reasons why we are so inclined to be consumed with dietary things is because the very first sin that our first parents committed had to do with food. Very interesting. The thing that we find to give us sustenance and to to carry us forward in life can become the greatest hindrance to us and a snare to us. Well, here Paul is saying there are some who believe they can eat anything, verse 2, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Listen, I didn't say that. Paul says that. <laughs> the strong person eats meat. The weak person eats veggies. Sorry, moms. I know. Don't you guys want some broccoli? No. I want some more of that bacon. Um... Now, now, this is, as I said, a perennial issue, and there are some Christians who have a conscience fully informed by God's word, and they know that they are at liberty to eat anything, particularly in this culture where you still had the Jew and Gentile divide and the dis dispersion, and you had many Jews who, when they were converted to Christianity, they had their consciences bound still to the Old Testament dietary laws. They were thinking about the clean and the unclean that God had set out in the Mosaic Law, and they were failing to recognize, at least at this point, that God had done away with that distinction. By the way, that distinction had a very unique purpose in redemptive history. That distinction of clean and unclean animals and what you could eat and what you couldn't that represented the distinction between Jews and Gentiles that was broken down when Christ came. That distinction kept the Jewish people in the Old Covenant from having table fellowship with idolaters because you couldn't fellowship with people if you couldn't eat the same food as them. There were very distinct temporary preparatory aspects to the dietary laws in the Old Testament. But when we come into the New Testament... And you'll remember in, in Acts chapter 10 when Peter has that vision and the Lord sets down that sheet and it's full of bison and pigs and bacon and pork and all kinds of good meats that we love in the new covenant. And Peter said, no, Lord, no, my conscience won't allow me. And the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, Lord, he argues with the Lord. Think about this. 
Your conscience can be so improperly informed that you could argue with God over what he's telling you. But you can also understand that if you grew up in that culture, if, you, if your lineage was Jewish, how that would be very hard for you to have your conscience reinformed and reevaluated and reinstructed. And so Paul is addressing the ways in which we are to welcome each other in light of those differences. Um, Notice in verse 5, Paul moves on from diets to days. And here I don't think he has the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. That is a moral command. The fourth commandment is always binding. He's talking about festivals. He's talking about those other Sabbaths. He's talking about those ceremonial days in the Old Covenant. And again, there would be those who had been Jewish and they had become Christians and they had fully embraced Christ and they had fully embraced the gospel and they had fully bound themselves to the church, but they were having a hard time letting go of well, I still want to celebrate the, the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles or these other feast and festival days. They're not binding other people to do it. They're not saying you have to do it. They're saying, but we want to do that as unto the Lord, even though we know we don't have to. Paul is dealing with diets and he is dealing with days. He says one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. There is an obligation. Notice chapter 15, verse 1. That obligation is sort of summarized in Romans 15.1. Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's the principle. That's the obligation. Very straightforward. Now, what are the obstacles? And so much of this chapter are taken up with those obstacles to fulfilling that obligation. Well, notice, Paul recognizes that there are two very real dangers for strong brothers and sisters and weak brothers and sisters. There is a unique danger for strong brethren to despise and to look condescendingly on the weak. And there is a danger for those who have unbiblically informed consciences who are weak in the faith to condemn those who are strong in the faith. Condescension and condemnation. Condescension, I'm looking down, that person, they should know better, they don't know, look at that, if they knew better, and condemnation, they shouldn't be doing that, they shouldn't be eating that, if they were real Christians, they wouldn't do that. Notice Paul tells us that. He tells us very clearly here, um, notice verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. There it is, condescension. Let not the one who eats meat and drinks wine and knows that he or she can do it to the Lord, let them not disdain or condescend those that do not eat and drink. That's one danger. And then notice there is an equal and opposite danger. He says, let not the one who abstains, second part of verse 3, pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Now, here's what's interesting. When we look at the things that the church in Rome was struggling with here, the strong despising the weak, the weak judging the strong, it was not over the really important doctrinal things. Again, I want to emphasize this. Paul is not saying... You know, it's okay if you don't believe all the doctrine I set out. He, he never says that anywhere. He does say be patient with all. But here, it's over matters that are minutiae and are trivial. Now, you have to listen very carefully this morning. More Christians trip up over trivial minutiae and wanting to sledgehammer others with their preferences and opinions over trivia and minutiae 
than over almost anything else, destroying the fellowship and destroying the unity and the acceptance we have in Christ. Um, Eric Alexander, listen to this. Eric Alexander says, a preoccupation with trivial matters is oftentimes a sign of spiritual sickness. If we tend to think, well, when I go to church, I like to dress like this. If, you know, in our church, we don't use this instrument, or we don't do this, or we don't. It's trivia. It's all trivia. All of it's trivia. I like to eat that. They shouldn't eat that. Trivia. I think I can drink. I don't think I get trivia. All of it. And what we tend to do is take trivia things that we have our consciences bound about, and we tend to make them ultimate things and then either judge others or despise others based on those things. Well, I don't think other Christians should drink. Judge. Well, they shouldn't only be eating vegetables. Despise. You see, and we do it in lots of different ways. More Christian fellowships have been destroyed by people taking trivial matters of secondary or tertiary importance, putting them in the driver's seat, and then despising or condemning others. It could happen in our convictions about how we should school. It can happen in food things. It can happen in all the little distinctives about what our church does that other churches don't do. Not in doctrinal things, but in all the minutia and the triviality. And this ought to be a wake-up call for us, that if we allow those things to be obstacles, we will never fulfill the obligation to welcome the weak and the strong, who both profess faith in the same Christ, who have been accepted by the same Lord, who serve the same Lord, and who want to please the same Lord. Notice this. Notice what Paul says in verse 5. Notice this. He says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it to honor the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. What Paul is saying is, whether you are strong in the faith or weak in the faith, if the, the operating motive of your heart is, I want to do this to be pleasing to the Lord because I belong to him, because he's redeemed me, because he's justified me, because he's welcomed me into his everlasting family. If my desire is not to drink as unto the Lord, then I do it as unto the Lord. And if it's to drink as unto the Lord, then I do it as unto the Lord. You see, that's, that's the overarching principle. That's why these obstacles cause so much harm. What Paul is essentially saying here is, when I put an obstacle in my brother's way because I think I'm strong and he's weak and I want to tell him and argue with him to win points, that what I'm ultimately doing is I'm worried about you and I'm worried about what you think and I'm worried about what I think about you and I'm not worried about my life before the Lord. You see? Where is my focus? If my focus is... I eat unto the Lord, I don't eat unto the Lord. I drink unto the Lord, I don't drink unto the Lord. I observe this day unto the Lord, I don't observe this day as unto the Lord. In those ideophora, indifferent, trivial things, the apostle is saying, when I've taken my focus off my responsibility to the Lord, I put it on self, and then I put it on others, and then I become an obstacle. Um... You know, I was thinking about this this week, and I was asking myself, Nick, in what ways do you do this? And the conclusion that I drew is that I oftentimes do it in my heart toward others that tend not to have as biblically informed consciences. And I may not say it to them, but in my demeanor, I act as if I don't have time to deal with those differences because I think I'm at a more biblical place than them. That's what we tend to do. We may not verbalize it. We may not even tell others what we think, but our disposition toward those that are weak in the faith, or if we're weak, our disposition toward those who are strong in the faith, oftentimes reveals what's really in our heart, and that I'm more interested about policing you than I am about living as unto the Lord. 
That's what Paul's saying. Those are the obstacles. Um, Listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson says, Paul's whole approach to this is to underline that secondary issues must never be regarded as primary conditions of fellowship. Secondary issues must never be regarded as primary conditions of fellowship. He says, many of us have an inbred instinct to sort others out. Listen, y'all, I'm basically a Southerner now. We're Southern. We can be sweet. We can be diplomatic. Instead of saying things got really messed up, we say they went sideways. We soften things. We can say things that are couched in sweet terms to others, and yet our instinct is, I'm going to sort them out. I'm going to say it in such a way that maybe they'll hear what I really want to say, but I'm not saying it to the degree that I would because I don't want them to know I'm really trying to sort them out. We're very complicated people. Very complicated. And Paul wants us to know, listen, you have a conscience. You've been purchased by Christ. You belong to the Lord. So does every other believer. And regardless of whether you have a conscience that is fully informed by God's word or partially informed by God's word, whether you are strong in the faith or weak in the faith, we are to welcome one another and not put these hindrances in the way of fellowship with one another. You know what I find remarkable about this? Paul is not saying in this chapter, it doesn't matter whether or not you get a conscience that's fully informed by Scripture. He's not saying that. And there have been many who said, well, you know what, we've got to be careful because the, the strong brother could let the weak brother treat him like the weak brother and the weak brother act like the strong brother, and that certainly happens. Paul's not saying treat the weak brother like they're the strong one and you, like you're weak. But Paul's also not saying what you ought to do is if you see someone who has a a, a less than fully informed conscience biblically, then it's your job. You better make sure they know how to get one. Instead, he says, bear with one another, welcome one another, receive one another. And then listen, now this is fascinating. Paul takes his focus off of the weaker brother and the danger that the weaker brother or sister is ever in in condemning the stronger brother. And he focuses all his attention on the responsibility of the stronger brother toward the weak. This is fascinating. He addresses both throughout the first part of this chapter, and then he turns his attention to the strong brother, and he says, now listen, you're the stronger brother, Here's the weightier responsibility that you have. Notice verse 13. He says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, many people have misread the rest of this chapter. And they have read everything that Paul says from verse 13 to verse 23 to say, sure, you have the liberty to drink wine, but you know what? You better not do it because you might make somebody stumble. It's not saying that. What he's saying is there is a danger for those who are strong in the faith, whose consciences are most fully informed by Scripture, who understand Christian liberty, who know that they can eat whatever meat is put in front of them, they can drink wine, they can celebrate a day or not celebrate a day. He, he is addressing people who know the liberty they have in Christ, and he's saying, now, here's, here's the second danger for you, is that you can say to someone whose conscience is not as fully biblically informed and who is weak in the faith, you can say, listen, you can eat that, you can drink, come on. And if that person goes against their conscience, which is not as fully biblically informed, but is still their conscience before the Lord, and and they eat and drink because you are essentially pushing them to, you are putting a stumbling block in their way and you are causing them to sin. Paul is not saying, don't get together with other people with strong consciences and eat meat and drink wine. He is not saying that. 
He's saying that in every case we are to be mindful of where our brother or sister is, and we are not to try to impose on them something that God has not graciously already done in their consciences. You know, this is such a magnificent section and one that if the Christian church in our day would really imbibe in practice, how many disputes, how many foolish arguments, how many divisions, how many, how many preferential infightings would be avoided in congregations? Well, I don't like that. I don't like how we chose this color for the wall. I don't like how we laid this out. I don't like this. Those are all symptoms of the same problem internally. Focus on self will always lead to despising or condemning others who are not exactly where we are. Focus on the Lord will always encourage us to welcome, love, and bear with one another. Notice what Paul does here. It's so wonderful. He, he embeds really the solution to these obstacles there in verse 7. I want you to focus on verse 7. This is sort of the centerpiece of his argument here. Notice this. He says, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. What, is, what does he mean? I understand what Paul means when he says none of us lives to himself. I have an obligation to you. You have an obligation to me. We have an obligation to one another. That's clear. What does Paul mean, though, when he says none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself? What Paul's saying is if you make it all about you, your wants, your desires, your desire to be authentic to yourself, you are saying I live to myself, I live for myself, and no one's going to judge me. I remember Tupac came out with an album. Nobody's going to judge me. Actually, yes, Tupac, the Lord is going to judge you. Yes, yes, when we have a posture of no one's going to judge me, Paul says, listen, none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. He says, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Why? How does this work? How do I get to a place where I'm not living for myself or acting like I'll die to myself and that I am the only thing that matters? Notice what Paul says, for this end, verse 9, Christ died and lived again. What is going to take me off of myself to care for others and to know that I live for the Lord and I die to the Lord is to remember that the Lord died for me and that he rose for me. When I remember that Christ died for me and rose for me, I'm not going to have an attitude of, I live for myself and I die to myself. Notice this, Paul says in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then notice verse 12, each of us will give account of himself to God. That means, if I look out, and I see a brother or sister who is weak in the faith, and I either heap condemnation on them or despise them, or if I look at someone who's strong in the faith and think I'm stronger than them when I'm weak and I condemn them or I despise them, then what I'm acting like is I am the one who's going to judge you on Judgment Day, that I am the Lord of you and your conscience. And Paul says, listen, why would you judge your brother? Why would you despise him? We will all stand before the judgment seat and we will give account of ourselves to God. Um, you know, it's really interesting. This chapter seems so out of place compared to the gravity of the other things that Paul writes in this book, in this letter. And yet, this has massive implications, massive implications for the culture of a church, for the culture of a home, for the culture of a marriage, for the culture of parenting, for the culture of the way in which we conduct ourselves 
before a watching world. Listen, listen to this. D.A. Carson says, A proper focus on conscience, especially conscience that is shaped and strengthened by Scripture, will incite us toward holiness, teach us to, what to do with our guilt, drive us to the gospel, draw us something of the joy of the Lord, and help the church to be a countercultural, diverse community. Because we're not just going to try to fit everybody into the mold of what we want them to be and what I think they ought to look like on all these secondary or tertiary things. We hold loosely to those things and we hold tightly to the principle of welcome one another as Christ has received you. Now here's the really shocking thing. When professing believers fail to do this, they are essentially and functionally denying the gospel because they have forgotten that Christ redeemed us when we were weak, when we were helpless, when we were enemies, when we were without strength, as Paul says in chapter 5. When there was nothing in us to condemn us to Christ, he welcomed us. Notice what Paul says at the beginning of verse 15. He says, let each of us he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, for Christ did not please himself. As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. If we are being conformed to the image of the Savior we are professing to believe in, then we are going to follow in his steps of bearing the weight of caring for those even and especially when they're weak in the faith. Um, I have a friend who for many years believed a very aberrant doctrine about the origins of the world, denying what Scripture so clearly teaches about God creating the world out of nothing in the space of six days. And we would sit and discuss things recurrently. I never got a sledgehammer out. I never strong-armed him. And one day he came to me and he said, you know what? He said, I think I've changed my view on this and I really appreciate you not, you know, demeaning me as I wrestled through this. Now, we, we, we need to remember that's, that's how we're to be with one another in, in every situation. If we try to enforce on somebody else, I'm right about this, you're wrong. And, and we do that. We may not say it that way. We feel that. We act that way. The way we come across. Um, I had somebody tell me recently that they expressed to someone a certain belief about something that was sort of a secondary issue and someone old, much older than them said, you know, I've lost all respect for you. That's, that's, that is a denial of what Paul is saying here. That is, that's a verbatim denial of what Paul is warning about. Um, Instead, we're to bear with the weak. We're to be patient with all. We're to instruct gently and lovingly at the right time, in the right way. Listen, this is not just political posturing. This is vital for the life of any Christian fellowship. And if every believer got this, how far we would go with one another even when we have differences on secondary or tertiary things. Not on, not on ethical matters on which the Bible is so crystal clear, but on, on all those other secondary, trivial things of religion and minutiae. Um, I love the way that Ferguson sums this up. I'm going to leave you with this this morning. He says, reflecting on the end of this and Paul's admonition not to destroy the one uh, who's weak in the faith by your liberty and flaunting it in front of them and trying to bring them to do it. Ferguson says, I don't need to exercise my liberties in order to enjoy them. And the corollary, if I need to exercise my liberties in order to enjoy them, I've fallen back into bondage. 
Isn't that interesting? If I think I'm going to prove a point, I'm going to tell them where they're wrong, I'm going to, then, then I may actually be in bondage myself because I'm not living as unto the Lord and living before the Lord. I'm trying to be the Lord of other people's consciences and to care about myself in front of them. I want to encourage you this morning. Actually, I've got one more quote. I lied. This is marvelous, y'all. I would be remiss if I did not read this. John Calvin, summing the whole thing up on Romans 14.1, Calvin says, those who have made the most progress in Christian doctrine should accommodate themselves to the more ignorant and employ their own strength to sustain their weakness. For among the people of God, there are some weaker than others, and who, except they are treated with great tenderness and kindness, will be discouraged and at length become alienated from religion. You see, if we're not careful, we can drive people away from the gospel they are professing to believe because we are destroying them by not welcoming them and being tender and gentle and patient and kind and thoughtful toward them. I want to encourage you that as you meditate on these things, as you ask yourself that question, how have I either despised one I, I deem to be weak in the faith, or, or how have I maybe judged and condemned someone who was strong in the faith? As you ask yourself that question, you, you honestly try to answer that, that you would say, you know, the remedy is to remember that Christ has died for me, that he lives for me, that whether I live or die, I live to the Lord or I die to the Lord, that Christ did not please himself, and that the Lord Jesus welcomed me when there was nothing welcoming, nothing about me he should have welcomed. And he bore all of my weakness and all of my sin and all of my rebellion and all of my waywardness and all of my stupidity on himself at the cross. So that now, as I live in light of that truth, knowing that I'll live to him and die to him, and whether I eat or drink or observe days, I do it to the Lord or I don't, that I'll learn to love and welcome and care for others even when they're not exactly where I am. That's an important word for us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word, and we acknowledge, Lord, that there have been many times when we have, in our hearts, at least condemned those for doing things that are not... um, worthy of condemnation, and we have despised brothers and sisters for not having consciences as fully informed by your word as they ought to, and Lord, we have failed to live our lives as we ought before you, knowing that we live to you and die to you, and that we will give account to you and not for another, and so our God, would you mature us in the faith? Would you help us not only to receive these things by way of understanding in our minds, but would you cause them to take deep root in our hearts? We pray, our Father, that we would be the most welcoming congregation, the most welcoming man or woman, as we live in light of the liberty that you have given us in Christ and our conscience is bound to your word. Would you make us a people who welcome the weak? and who bear long with them, and who will not put a stumbling block in their way. Lord, would you cause these things to be evident in our fellowship as long as we are together? And so would you cause your word to bear fruit in us to this end? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.